Amen. We have a, uh, a grandson that just turned two years old on Good Friday. His name is Leonard James, uh, Lenny. And we have a, a shared family album. And in that album, our daughter-in-law, Lily, uh, about a month ago, she said that um, she, Mommy had said to Lenny, uh, Mommy needs Jesus. Now, I don't know if this was because she was struggling with patience that day, if she had gotten frustrated, or if she was just making a general statement. She said, Mommy needs Jesus. And then she showed us that Lenny went over to the bookshelf and picked up the children's story Bible that Baga, my wife, and Grandpa gave to Lenny. I could have died and gone to heaven. <laughs> And I want to lead us into prayer here by saying we all need Jesus. We all need Jesus. And friends, we find him in his word, which we are now going to unpack. So let's pray uh, that we would find Jesus there as he is revealed to us in the word of God. Father, we all need Jesus. And God, in this age when so many are doubting Him, so many are blaspheming Him, so many are walking away from Him and discounting Him, I pray that You today would give us the gift of faith. God, He is real not because we believe, but we believe because He is real and He is risen. We all need Jesus. And so now may You speak to us about Him, may He speak to us from Your Word by the power of Your Spirit. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Uh, about ten days ago, while I was working on this message, the room started shaking a bit. And you know what I'm talking about. There was a mild earthquake, a 4.5 earthquake, outside of Temecula. And I must say that that jolt helped me indwell the pathos of this passage. But even more than that, I actually had met with somebody that day from our church who was here today, and he had attended uh, this, he had been in this building when another church, actually a previous church, also worshipped here back in 2010. And on April 4th, on Easter Sunday, he let me know, and he looked it up, there was actually an earthquake during Easter worship. And I thought, man, that is a full sensory sermon, a full sensation sermon there. And uh, no wonder that church grew. <laughs> if we have a little earthquake today, we'll be safe. This building is very earthquake-proof. But we know that earthquakes can be quite devastating and horrific for other parts of the world and in, uh, for people in other times in the ancient world. Biblically speaking, an earthquake is so often an apocalyptic sign, which means uncovering. It means that God is up to something here with gargantuan significance. One writer said with poetic flourish, the earth which trembled with sorrow at the death of Christ, as it were, leapt for joy at his resurrection. A blinding, bright, white angel descended to roll away the stone, the stone and, and sealed, uh, uh, sat upon that stone 
in a kind of display of divine strength and authority. I think I do need my glasses. <laughs> um, one scholar named Donald Hagner points to the irony of the guards' paralyzing fear. He says, the ones assigned to guard the dead appear dead themselves, while the dead one has been made alive. A great irony indeed, a beautiful irony. And this seismic shock rippled through history as an event that is still, friends, changing the world like no other event has, and that is meant to be changing our lives forever. And so we are going to walk through this passage by looking at, at two simple words, uh, two simple verbs, but so profound for us today. One is seeing, and the other is saved. And this first point allows us to answer the question, did this actually happen? Now, it's important today that this is not only for people who are skeptics, but also for believers who want to bolster their faith. Just this past week, a Christian reached out to me and said, I'm struggling to believe in the resurrection. Can we work on this together? Can we read something together? And that is a kind of faith, seeking understanding through the evidence that we find here. You see, in this passage, there's an emphasis on the eyewitnesses and their sound and valid testimony. It is recording that they saw and what they saw so we might believe in the life-changing reality of the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 1. Behold, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. They were following the Jewish tradition of ensuring that bodies were dead. And I want you to see that as we go through this passage in ten short verses, the word see appears at least four times, and it's two different words in the Greek for see. They want us to see, Matthew wants us to see what they saw with their own eyes. The angel tells the two Marys, come see where he lay. And this word can mean look at or gaze or even partake and discern. You see, it is starting to let us know here, Matthew is, that they're not just noticing a bare fact, but they are beginning perhaps to perceive what they are seeking. They are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, but he is not here, they are told by the angel. He is risen. It is actually God has raised him. This is called the divine passive. God has raised him just as Jesus said. And see, they witnessed his crucifixion back in chapter 27, and now they are witnesses to his empty tomb. And here is the further corroboration. Jesus had prophesied, had predicted his own death. I once heard a very well-known comedian, uh, an atheist, say, mocking Christianity, yeah, you know, the followers of Elvis believe that Elvis is alive too. Now, that is an absolutely silly and foolish comparison. You see, the shocking resurrection was not a random occurrence that just plopped into history, but rather it fit into the plan of God. It fit into God's story of redemption that Jesus kept laying out 
for the crowds that Jesus kept laying out and unfolding for his disciples. One example is Matthew 16, where Jesus says, from that time, or Matthew says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This is like nothing else in history. Jesus predicted his own death. And verse 7 says that the angel said, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you in Galilee, and there, once again, you will see him. And the word for see here is a little deeper. It's not just a cursory glance. It means perceive and experience. And so the the women are starting to get a sense of what could be going on. And Matthew is marshalling all this evidence to verify that Jesus has been raised. And friends, here is one of the points of verification. Many have said it before, and it has struck me in a new way this year. The first witnesses were women. Now, to us, that might not be a big deal, but in the ancient culture there, female testimony was not even admissible in a court of law. Women in that culture were not allowed to buy property. And so the biblical scholar, the um, Christian scholar Rebecca Mulglaughlin has said, if you were trying to convince first century folk that, truly, that something truly unbelievable had happened, the last thing you do is hinge your story on the testimony of women. Why? Because you would want to leave these kinds of awkward details, awkward for them, not for us. You'd want to leave them um, out. You'd want to smooth it out. You'd only leave them in if they were powerfully true. And you had nothing to hide. And so astonishingly and beautifully, the women become the first custodians, the first proclaimers of the message. What a beautiful, countercultural reality that was and is for us. And so the combination of the empty tune and the definite, solid appearances make this all so compelling. And yet, here's the other thing that makes this story ring true. We are told later, just a few verses later, in verse 17 of chapter 8, that many worshipped, but some doubted. You see, they they leave the, the awkward, difficult parts of this narrative and this occurrence in the story. And so it is today. And so it is today. Some believe and some doubt. Now, on Good Friday, we almost heard Frozen quoted. Um, I am a a grandpa of three granddaughters, so I am going to quote Frozen to you. Um, There is a portion, and if Amelia is listening, my granddaughter, she's going to be tuning in now (laughs) with great focus. Um, There is a scene... Uh, in Frozen 2, the moment where the lead girl, Anna, gets hit in the head by the icy powers of her sister. 
And then she is taken to the magical community of the trolls for healing. And one of the trolls says, and some of you know this by heart, <laughs> I don't, uh, a, it's a good thing she didn't get hit in the heart. The heart is not so easily changed, but the head can be persuaded. And boy, that is so true. Uh, the head can be persuaded, and that's part of what Matthew is trying to do here, but the heart can be resistant. There are so many in our day who would say, science does not allow for this kind of occurrence. Uh, but friends, science uh, does not preclude this. This is an event of God entering into history, the God who made and sustained the world and doing a wonderful miracle, not a, a random thing, but a miracle that has great meaning. And there was a conference some years ago where there were a number of scientists who are Christians. Uh, and there were a number of pastors there as well. And a physicist who is a believer, his name is Ted Davis, he describes a scenario, the situation, where there was a breakout room uh, during one of the, the breaks at the conference, and five scientific believers, a philosopher of science, a physicist, a biologist, a historian of science, all of whom believe in Matthew and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the, de uh, from the dead, they got into a conversation with five pastors who did not believe in the resurrection. Now that may shock you, but they were coming from liberal seminaries like Yale Divinity and others, probably mine where I went, Princeton Seminary. Uh, I saw that kind of thing. And this writer, Ted Davis, describes how incredible this conversation was. That here are five scientists talking to five pastors and the pastors are grieving, one of them actually in tears, and he said, many years ago, we had to give up belief in miracles and the resurrection in particular. We now do what is called, has been called demythologizing, reading the scripture as though these things didn't really happen. And the physicist Ted Davis says, what's incredible is not Christ's resurrection vis-a-vis -vis science, but that there are five pastors who are telling us scientists that the resurrection could not have happened. And Ted Davis writes, it is ironic. And science is actually impotent to deny such a singular, uh, singular event. And theologians, or perhaps people who have grown up in the church and walked away, Theologians who believe otherwise can blame only themselves and not science for their unbelief. Friends, you can't blame science for your unbelief. You can only blame yourself. The head can be persuaded, but it's hard to change the heart. May the risen Jesus change our hearts today. You see, they see and they're beginning to perceive. And so I want to ask you, are we seeing, based on their eyewitness testimony, consider the things that you see, that you look at. Um, I rode up to Cook's Corner up El Toro last week, and of course we have had record-breaking rains, and I kept thinking, I am in the hills of Ireland right now, 
enjoying this beautiful countryside. Next week, I'll be looking into the face of my fourth newborn grandchild. And next month, if I get to go out there, I'll be looking at my fifth newborn grandchild. Yet despite this kind of grandeur and this kind of sweetness in our seeing, friends, there is nothing like seeing, beholding, perceiving, and experiencing Jesus. That's what those five scientists would want us to believe. That's what Matthew wants us to know. May we really see the crucified and risen Lord. And so we've seen seeing, and we're going to look now at saved. And this brings us to the question, why does it matter? Why does it matter at all that Jesus is raised? Well, because he was raised to save us. You see, this scene is a culmination of the salvation promised at Jesus' birth. It is a completion of the story. The angel announced at that first Christmas in Matthew 2, you will call him Jesus, for he will what? Save his people from their sins. And so now here in the last chapter of Matthew, Jesus has completed that mission. In fact, the angel calls him Jesus, the one having been crucified. It's almost like a title. We never move away from the crucifixion of Jesus. He had to die to pay our insurmountable debt. Romans 6 says the wage of sin is death, which Jesus bore and paid in full on the cross. See, friends, at its root, sin is our failure to love the first thing first, to worship and delight in God supremely with all that we are. And per perhaps you, like I am, sometimes tempted to view God as an instrument of our own purposes as we treat him as a means to an end rather than as our chief end. We fall short of loving God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, which Jesus listed as the greatest commandment just a few chapters earlier in Matthew. Friends, we treat created things as though they are ultimate, as though they are created, creator, so often. And C.S. Lewis called this the sweet poison of the false infinite. You see, sin is staking our lives on something or someone other than God. It is, it is trusting in or loving a romantic partner or money or politicians. Scratch that. No one trusts politicians in this room, I think. It's, it is loving and trusting other things more than we love and trust God. And we see sin's effects everywhere. We see it horizontally in that we don't love our neighbor as ourselves, which Jesus listed as the second greatest commandment. Now, many of you have gotten into pickleball, um, which is the fastest growing sport in America. And last summer, I read a, an essay in The New Yorker on pickleball, and it was so interesting because it talked about how it's grown in popularity, but that pickleball is attracting more and more money and corporate sponsorship, and a lot of the dynamics on um, pickleball courts are beginning to change. You know, some of its initial traits of 
intergenerational hospitality, all ages playing together, people being polite, people being considerate, not being too cutthroat. Well, with all the money coming in, all the corporate sponsorships, those things, those good qualities are beginning to get swamped by certain players who are aggressive and impolite and don't bring a great dynamic into pickleball. But the article said that pickleballers police their courts. And so they say when somebody is being a jerk, sorry, that is so tennis. <laughs> you are being so tennis. Now, apologies to the tennis players. But just think about that, friends. What a great line. We are all so tennis in various areas of our lives, aren't we? Somebody is pouring out their heart or, or making a point to us, and we're thinking more about what we want to say rather than listening. Somebody shares with us some of the great things that are going on in their lives, and, and we feel grateful for them, but sometimes we also have a feeling that's green that begins to emerge in us. And we feel envy about their connections, their affirmations, and their progress. And so we all um, need to be told that's tennis. And you know what's really interesting? The title of that New Yorker article was, Will Pickleball Save Us? <laughs> the answer is no. We're looking for salvation, you see. Even the culture is. But pickleball can't save us. No, nothing can but Jesus. See, the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, he absorbed our death and granted us his life. One pastor has said he can provide us with death's cure because he dealt with death's cause. Taking away our sin and bringing you and me to God. And because of Christ's faithfulness, because he is innocent of all of our charges that were laid upon him, he has been raised from the dead. It was a judicial declaration of God the Father, and he is alive forevermore in a new and heavenly body, never to be broken again. And friends, it's the grace of God that we can never earn that prompts Easter, that prompts Good Friday, that prompts Christmas. You see, Jesus meets the women and says, greetings, and friends, that's the Greek word kairate, and it means rejoice, be glad. But if you dig deeper, it's charis, and it's the word grace. You see, Jesus is giving them his grace. It is grace that is alive in the person of Christ. And so, friends, how do we respond to his gracious salvation? Well, notice that the risen Lord meets them on the way to Galilee, evoking their profound adoration as they fall before him and clasp his feet. They are paying homage to a king. They are recognizing his deity, and Jesus receives that. Jesus receives their acclaim. And they are saying to him, I must have you. I cannot live without the living one. And so, friends, believing in Jesus is not just assent. Like those five scientists give Christ their assent, but they would also say that believing is clasping, it is falling at his feet. 
And if we are joined to Jesus by faith, his resurrection will be ours. His resurrection, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, is the first fruits of our resurrection. It is the tip of the spear, the invasion against death from God himself. And I want you to notice the very first verse that is so significant. This all happens on the dawn of the first day. You see, Jesus is the vanguard of a new day, of a new creation. He is making all things new. That means your body, my body, and all things will be transformed and glorified after the pattern of Jesus. Now, the passage is realistic, and what keeps showing up? Fear keeps showing up in this account. However, as the women move toward seeing or toward from, from the empty tomb to seeing the risen Jesus, terror gives way to hope and awe and gladness. And so I want to ask, what are you fearing? Perhaps it's the disappearance of your work or the persistence of pain or the mortality of a loved one or your own mortality. One philosopher said everything one achieves in life, even love, occurs on an express train racing toward death. And friends, whether it comes at the end of the ripe old age of 99 or suddenly as in a fatal crash, death is the great interrupter. It is the unwanted, unwelcome intruder. And it approaches all of us at different speed and yet Christ has wrestled with death and he has vanquished our foe by dying and rising. And so we grieve the loss of our loved ones, but we grieve with hope that we won't be swallowed up by fear because Christ has swallowed the swallower. Jesus did get out of that grave and that means that we can put all of life's eggs in that Easter basket. We can hold on to him. Now, many of you know about the tragedy at Covenant Presbyterian Church and school. Um, you probably know that the lead pastor, Chad Scruggs, had his precious daughter taken from him. And just a day or so after that horrible event, that pastor in, in the belief in Christ, in the gospel, in the kinds of things that we're seeing here in Matthew 28, Chad wrote this, through tears, we trust that she is in the arms of Jesus who will raise her to life once again. You see, it's not just that we clasp Jesus, but he holds on to us. And so the women then run in fear and joy, in deep joy, in overwhelming happiness, because Jesus then tells them, go tell my brothers about me. Now that's an amazing phrase. My brother, my brothers. You see, they were, these were the ones who scattered under pressure who treated his kingdom as a place for their own advancement and higher position. These were the ones who denied him three times that they never knew him. But he says to them, and he says to you who have been too busy and distracted to focus on Jesus, 
to you who are struggling with addiction, to you who believe but you also really doubt and you're unsure if this is true, he says to you, my brothers and my sisters, I have been raised from the dead. Believe in me. Clasp me. Hold on to me. And rejoice. And go and tell others what you have seen based upon the eyewitness testimony of this rock-solid truth. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would fill our hearts with wonder, that we would believe in Jesus, that our minds would be persuaded and convinced. And we do confess that it's harder for our hearts to change. Sometimes we don't believe because we don't want to. And when that is the case, God, we don't have science to blame, but only our unbelief. We thank you for this incredible event in human history. The most life-changing, earth-shaking occurrence that the world has ever known. There is no one like Jesus. And we pray that we would be changed by him, that we would bring our doubts to you, that we would bring our addictions, our despair, our loneliness, our, our irritation and frustration. God, we are so tennis. We don't love you and others as we should. We are so often curved in on ourselves. But we thank you that Jesus paid the price in full and that therefore you raised him from the dead and therefore we need not fear the things of this life. We need not fear that our loved ones might be taken from us. We need not fear our own mortality for Jesus has been raised to immortal life. And so God, we pray in these silent moments that you would encourage our faith and help us to believe and now we're going to have a moment of silence. Thank you, Father, that you hear our prayers. Amen.